Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Welcome to episode 48 of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. This is part of our Community Voices series, and today I have the pleasure of introducing you all to Rex St. John. Rex formerly was a developer relations engineer at NVIDIA, and he recently left that role to jump headlong into Web3 and the Cosmos ecosystem, joining the Saga team, which is building a launch pad for new Cosmos zones, and very exciting. And recently, he was our host at the ReFi Summit in Seattle uh, back in May. And Rex is an enormously intelligent guy. Uh, He's been developing this idea that he calls from apples to orchards, which I find really enlightening and useful. And this is a very wide ranging and interesting conversation. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, Rex St. John, uh, welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast and our uh, community series featuring grantees. And i um, super excited to have you on the show and chat about the, the future of decentralized compute and the role it plays in refi and also chat a little bit about the refi summit coming up in May that you're helping organize. Yeah, I really appreciate your help and all opinions shared here are my own opinions and nobody else's. Awesome. <laughs> cool. So um, let's just dive in. Maybe it's useful to just give give folks a little bit of a background of like, you know, like who you are and where you're coming from, because I think that's that's super helpful context for what we're about to dig into here on the sort of edge computing and, you know, IoT and the role that that may play in, in what's coming next. So uh, you want to just yeah. give everybody a quick overview of, you know, um, Who's Rex? <laughs> uh, so I spent the last 15 years in developer ecosystems, and I've worked at the world's largest semiconductor companies, including Intel, ARM, and NVIDIA. And during the last 10 or 15 years, uh, it's been my honor to meet with the top CTOs, CEOs, principal engineers, and to understand what they're doing and the direction they're heading. And I try to get very early market insight, and I've kind of developed this sense of a spider sense about where things are likely to go. And I've, I've learned how to how to build these ecosystems and get in touch with the smart people that are building stuff. And then it, it helps me understand where things are likely to head next. I believe that we're on the verge of some very fundamental and interesting changes in the compute industry. And they're hopefully going to be tightly linked with uh, environmental concerns, because for the first time, I believe we're going to be able to uh, add an environmental accountability layer on top of all the computing infrastructure that we have out there in the world. So that's how I'm uh, approaching this space. Yeah, so that concept that you're sharing is essentially we're within reach of being able to kind of add a cybernetic feedback through smart contracts directly between compute infrastructure and the environmental costs that that compute infrastructure may have and like create an economic feedback mechanism directly between the digital and the physical. Yes. So um, my focus has been on IoT. And the idea with IoT is it's it's cheaper and easier than ever before to build these low-cost sensors and put them everywhere. So we spent the last decade like putting the sensors in the cars and agriculture and, you know, mining and everything, because it's now, you know, you can, you can build a a very uh, robust edge computing IOT system that has a full Linux processor. It can gather all the data camera sensor hub with tiny ML. So we figured that part of the equation out. And now uh, we're coming to the point where it's become increasingly possible to say, well, what if we are actually able to measure the environmental impact of all the stuff we're doing in a very finite way? Like we could say how polluted is the water, how much pollution is the air? And uh, citizens or, or corporations can work together to gather that data for the first time and provide this visibility. With some of the, the really exciting stuff I'm seeing from, you know, Tucan, Regen, Klima, uh, Moss. Uh, we're we're going to be able to uh, tokenize this this impact and and effectively offer the ability to voluntary taxation or voluntary donations of of anybody that's running these sensor networks where they can uh, pay to offset or ameliorate uh, ideally the the impact that they're they're measuring or having in the environment. 
Cool. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I would say I cannot resist pointing out that of those platforms, the only one that's actually working on <laughs> the how do you monitor, report, verify, and mint an ecological asset from scratch is Regen. And Toucan and Moss are essentially tokenizing carbon credits from the Vera registry, which is a completely sort of like antiquated and off-chain um, approach to monitoring, reporting, and verifying and creating a carbon credit. And Klima is just buying those and doing sort of like a, a treasury management thing. So with that said, I actually want to get in to the geeky details of like, I mean, there's reasons why folks aren't doing that. And it's kind of crazy that we are. And the ability to do that is a really fundamental part of why we chose the Cosmos SDK. Because the in engaging with edge computing and IoT and the Oracle problem from a Ethereum virtual machine architectural paradigm is impossible, essentially, to, yeah. I would say, to do with integrity. So I actually want to, I kind of want to dig in a little bit more. I know you've been sort of like digging into the Cosmos architecture and other pieces. And I remember, you know, a few months back, you kind of were excitedly... <laughs> yeah sort of like messaging me going like, oh, whoa. So the Cosmos SDK could be a Byzantine fault tolerant state machine, you know, consensus layer for a collection of IoT devices, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I've, I've just wandered into this space, whereas you've been here for a lot, lot longer. Yeah, so, so I started looking at that stuff and that just started setting off all kinds of uh, ideas for me because I just see this, I won't go all the way into it, but I, I would love to hear more about like, uh, how, how Regen is sees the space, and and like how how you're thinking might overlap with some of the things I just said. Well, I mean, generally speaking, we um, and for folks who want to geek out on this, our architectural approach for data on and off chain data is encapsulated in the, in the data module. It's essentially a semantic web approach to anchoring, signing, and resolving data from an RDF in in an RDF. What's an RDF? R RDF is a semantic web approach in which you have all data being referenced and being expressed in threes. So you have okay. like a subject, object, and predicate around any any data source. So yeah. it allows you to start to evolve things like reputation, trust graph, and other sort of pieces to build a bigger bigger graph approach. There are maybe some downsides to it. We're just really digging in to see if, if it's going to be sticky enough because sometimes doing things the right way is not the way that things happen. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my personal experience is a lot of changes don't happen because you explain people rationally what your logic and reasoning are and then yeah. they take careful notes and they say, oh, you're so brilliant. You know, let me go implement what you just said. I, that, I've never seen that happen. What I see happening is that some market force becomes so overwhelming that like you can no longer ignore the change and people just have to go along with it. <laughs> and I think that that's coming. So, so RDF stands for Resource Description Framework. And okay. it, it's a W3C standard for metadata, essentially. So we don't need to go down that rabbit hole necessarily. Are you familiar with the Foam network? I just saw them uh, this weekend for the first time. I, I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, uh, definitely worth digging into. They're really cool and geeky. And you can, like as an aficionado, like if, if, you, if there's a place in Web3 to sort of like dive down the rabbit hole of consensus and data integrity around a network of linked devices they're doing they're specifically doing radio based radio networks for proof of location is what they're doing and so it's it's sort of cool but you can learn a lot in that whole world more than i could like you because you have a technical back background that i don't so have so i find it it would be really useful to anchor in like what is the future look like and then like what's the difference from right now so because like we can get go down all these little details about like uh, the, the exact format. For me, the picture is very simple. The picture I have in my mind is we will have a what I'm calling a machine economy where every computer related resource, all the sensors, the connectivity, the energy, uh, the carbon footprint, the storage, the compute capacity, 
that is going to be exposed. Like I take my new server, I plug it into the internet and I download something. And then immediately I'm able to buy and sell uh, or, or sell off that capacity to anybody that wants to buy it uh, from the internet. And I get paid in some token. And we're seeing pockets of this beginning to happen. And with some of the, the innovation that, that's coming from the Cosmos ecosystem, that approach to having a sovereign blockchain, it's lightweight, it's proof of stake, you can, you can come up with your own versions of it. And that feels like the right direction. Whereas a lot of you know, the Ethereum and, and Bitcoin space is going down this path of either it's a proof of work thing, which burns off unnecessarily a lot of the, well, necessarily, a, a lot of the compute capacity just to solve arbitrary technical problems. And then the Ethereum side, like the whole conversation Ethereum is, we know we have the scaling problem and we don't know how we're going to serve all this demand, but we also want to create this, this network of descendant roll-ups, which will roll up all the transactions ultimately and pay, you know, some people feel like that's paying rent to Ethereum. Like they, they, yeah. they, they view that as being like, but it why, is. yeah, <laughs> why would I want to pay rent to Ethereum? I just want to innovate as fast as I can. Then there's Cosmos who's like, here you go, <laughs> build your own. Like you do you, you know, we'll just- But well, the difference there. between trying to, the best way I've seen it articulated, the difference between those approaches is sort of like a global mainframe yeah. versus the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and so like in the cosmos world, it's just sort of like, of course, people want to have their own. It's like a network of networks. Yeah. And like, of course, if you want a, you know, agricultural IoT data network that can create guarantees, of, like cer a certain level of guarantees about yeah. like signing data and you know, time stamping data and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You're like, of course you want to just be able to sort of like maintain consensus um, cheaply, easily, and with a certain amount of guarantees without being forced yeah. to into some like larger global, I'm using the exact same computer that yeah. somebody who's minting like a crypto punk or, or doing performance art yeah, to, or video to take or, the whole yeah. art or yeah, exactly. I view this entire space as a competition over the hardware, uh, because whenever I hear uh, people saying scaling problems, what they're really saying is, I want to convince more people to uh, act as validator nodes for my network, because they think that I'm going to have more transactions on my rollup or my, my subnet or whatever, and that they could make an ROI by supporting my network over somebody else's. So when you frame it like that, what, what I see is a big competition over how all the existing and, and future hardware gets used. Whose economy does that hardware get dedicated to support? And uh, my hope is um, we'll see a lot or some of that hardware or a lot of that hardware dedicated toward uh, projects like Regen Network. Yeah. And, and in order for that to be true, projects like Regen, Regen Network need to do a few things well. You know, like A, we need to have the right technical and architectural approach, but B, we, we need to have the right sort of like memes and sort of like <laughs> win it, you know, winning of the hearts and minds. Like, why is this important? Why is there a, yeah. a motivation to do this? And then C, there needs to be sort of like real economy behind it in which the value that's generated, exchanged, represented is um, significant enough to, to be generating value for infrastructure providers as part of the stack. I'm, I'm expecting that there's going to be significantly more competition for the attention of validators as a community. Like uh, I, I was looking at Avalanche and Avalanche has this concept of subnets where it's like, here's a, you know, here's your own, I don't know, I don't know exactly if it's a roll-up or it's a descendant blockchain, or it's like a, it's like your own localized, you know, uh, version of Avalanche that you get to run, uh, but you still need validator nodes. So it's like the question becomes, okay, you roll up your subnet, you create your subnet for some game or something, but you still need to attract people that will provide their hardware so you can provide security yeah. for it. I think validator experience and attracting and, 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 and making it easy for validators to participate is going to be a big deal in, in, the, in the coming years. No, I think that's right. I, I definitely think that's right. And it was at the beginning and there's already fierce competition yeah. for validators in the cosmos world. Yeah. Um, you already are seeing that. And, yeah. and some, some chains are winning and some chains are losing. It's, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly intense. 
So um, how much compute do you want to push to the edge versus having... So I guess a question that I'd love your opinion on is just where is the compute industry going? Like, where's the threshold? How much compute is going to be really, you know, in quotes at the edge and how much of it is going to be at data centers? How much of it is going to be at home? Like, where are the compute nodes going to be as the system continues to evolve? So in my day job, uh, I work at NVIDIA and I've, I've, I've looked at edge computing very extensively. And I, I, once again, these are my own opinions and nobody else's. So the data I've seen, we're seeing a, a combination of trends which are effectively forcing more and more hardware out to the edge. And by the edge, uh, so the, the edge is a complicated term because uh, if, if the, the leading place to go to understand the edge is you want to read the state of the edge, which is a, a sub-project of the Linux Foundation's Computing Edge Working Group, LF Edge Working Group. And they do some really great data where they where they collect all the top people and they compile all their input into these like free 86-page reports. So you can go read about where things are going. And basically, um, the way I'd characterize it is the cloud has been so successful. It's grown like so fast and it's like 20% a year. It's spilling over. It's like it's like this bathtub that's just filling up with money and it's like sloshing over. And, and like it's got to go... We get we're having so much cloud we have to like find new places to shove it. So there's these uh, global networks of, of of these edge data center companies or edge co-location sites called Equinix, American Tower, Digital Realty, and there's dozens of them. And they just uh, their goal is like I'm going to provide a piece of real estate and you can put your servers there so that it, server and storage there so you can get closer to where your customers are. And uh, a big driver of this is going to be the metaverse because. Uh, if I'm playing some video game with the guy down the street, I need a very low latency. You know, if I've got a VR headset and I'm processing, like pushing like a ton of media, like I don't want to necessarily make this whole round trip all the way to AWS in South Africa and all the way back. I want to go right to the guy down the street and then synchronize that as, as close as possible to the people I'm playing with and then sync that back so I can get that low latency. What we're beginning to see is that those edge locations are going to probably be filling up with a lot more GPUs than they had been previously, because uh, gaming and metaverse are going to need to be uh, located. The, the processing for those are going to be need to be located close to the edge. So I can show you the data. Like I, I've got some data on that, but uh, we're expecting, you know, not I'm just the industry is expecting, not anybody in particular. Uh, there's going to be a lot more hardware in those data centers. Uh, to, to support these. And, and, and then and it turns out that this same hardware is often the same kind of hardware that you, you probably want or need to, to act as validator nodes or support these local economies. Because I think the metaverse is going to need it, the running and securing the economy to make the metaverse happen, like the in-game economy, is going to be a first-class workload. You want it to be fast, secure, and local as well. Uh, so I, I think uh, we're, we're going to look at... Uh, a very exciting time in, in edge computing for the, the crypto and Web3 space. So what, describe, A, describe what these data centers sort of like look and feel like and, you know, how big are they, where where are they located, where are they getting their energy, and is it the, going to be the same in five years or is it going to sort of like continue to fractalize and get sort of s- smaller and smaller and more and more localized? Yeah, so a, a company that I would look at really closely is called Vapor.io. And what they've started doing is putting data centers into shipping containers. And they've deployed this into 36 different cities because now their idea is, okay, like take Wrigley Field in the Chicago area. There's the baseball, there's like all these retail stores, there's all like all the consumers. So they, they want to put the hardware into these little data centers and stick it like in the middle of this to support all these video and gaming and, and all these use cases together. So if you want to see a really exciting map that shows you just how prolific this can get, go to www.americantower.com. So American Tower are specialists in putting data centers at the base of 5G towers. So anytime you drive around, you see these kind of like ugly looking mass things, although sometimes they make them look like fake trees. You know, the, the small, like the millimeter wave uh, antenna, they look like these cactus things. Those all have data centers at the base. And on the American Tower website, you can see there's just tens of thousands of these things all around the world. So each one of those is a potential location. And each one of those is a location for some sort of edge computing. 
So this is a uh, very prolific. It's growing very fast. It's coming everywhere. And uh, it, it's got a lot of growth left in it. I'll tell you that. Fascinating. So when you drop one of these like vapor.io containers or American Tower Corporation, like, do you own it? If I'm a crypto billionaire, am I looking at these going like, oh, cool, I can just get a container full of GPUs dropped in my backyard. I can find a place with a fiber and 5G connection. So I've got some redundancy. I can dark fiber over to some friends. And then all of a sudden I've got my like secure compute node up and running. I can just, you know, like point and click on the map and it gets dropped there. Or are they owning this infrastructure and like leasing it to you? Like what's what what's the economics here? Uh, I believe Vapor and, and so I think edge co-location in general is they tend to just provide you a physical slot and you actually have to provide the server. So I, I think that, I believe that's how it works with Equinix, but they probably have their own, it's probably a mix of, of like stuff they own and like stuff they make available. So I think in general, it's like, it's on you. Like they'll, they'll give you the slot to put your server and then you provide that. I, I'm pretty sure that's how Vapor is working right now. Uh, but my guess is that I believe it's a, it's going to be a mix of the two. Okay. Interesting. Now, it's probably worth, I'm sure many of my listeners are thinking, wow, this sort of sounds alarming from an ecological perspective. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that this trend, yeah. sort of like just stepping back and like let everybody know, like this is sort of like a, a morality or values or ethics neutral prediction of like where an industry is heading. But now taking a step back, like what are the costs of that? What are things that we need to be aware of? Is there a way to do this in a less bad way or a positive way? So I'd actually love to talk about just like e-waste and energy wastage and just sort of like, how are we thinking about that as a community, as a digital community, a community that's that can see the, the upsides of global information technology and the intelligence that maybe that can imbue into our economy and our society, but also just taking a step back and asking what are the costs and are those costs worth it or, or what are the alternatives? So I think this is going to be a big area because uh, once I went down this cosmos rabbit hole uh, and I started learning, I started building an ecosystem of like, okay, who's actually looking at selling off this excess capacity to people over the internet? Like who's token, who's enabling like for yeah, Akash, there's one called Gridcoin, which is like a, a coin that's compatible with the folding at home and, and Boink ecosystem for researchers. There's one called Gollum Network. So there's, a, there's another one called Otoy Rendercoin, who are, who are selling off spare GPU capacity. So what I found in, uh, there's another one called Anchor. And what Anchor is doing is they're working with bare metal providers, bare metal uh, edge computing providers to sell off any excess capacity as Ethereum validator nodes. So this is a, a change that's underway and nobody's talking about it, but I'm, I've been doing my best to point it out over the last couple of months and maybe somebody will listen to this and understand what I'm, what I'm saying. So when you, when you see the growth of the edge computing, you see the growth of CDNs, which are also like have to be distributed out in the edge. And then you, you look at the environmental footprint of the data centers. The data I found said that 30 to 90%, depending on uh, who's running the data center, of the data center capacity and power is wasted. That's that's just the data that I came across. And uh, some of that is older data. I don't know if they've improved things, but uh, that's, not, that's not a good thing. Like um, if you build some data center and you fill it with all these hardware servers, and then either the power is wasted or, or, the, or they tend to sit around doing uh, just being idle, not running workloads, that's not a great thing. But at the same time, these edge locations also represent kind of local local entry points for, for this like environmental economics. Like what if we began using those to quantify and, and act as environmental center, sensors that act as the, the co-location site where maybe we gather all the data from the environment around these locations and then we dedicate part of these, uh, I'm, just, I'm just sort of brainstorming here, part of these data centers and edge computing locations to paying to offset or, or, or study the impact on the local environment. So this is kind of the direction I'm going, but uh, I, I don't have a full answer yet. 
and and uh, with things like regen, like like we have this ability to turn these local centers into into little uh, environmental accountability zones would would be my ultimate hope. Yeah, I mean that really resonates with how <clears throat> I was just reading version 0.8 of the white paper <laughs> that we wrote, and at that stage it was really centered on this concept concept of fusing like bioregional compute monitoring and yes. governance hubs where like the local communities are owner operators of the compute infrastructure that is also sort of connected with you know sort of an open science data collection system and that that's actually a really strong that creates a really strong fusion around local ecological economics and information technology and you know that's that's very exciting to think either we could be renting or owning that space as local communities and using it to gather publish and leverage real-time ecological data as part of the source of new economic value coming from the ecological health perspective not not just like the brute cuz actually the interesting thing here is ecological health is a source of value that is from an externalities perspective cost free meaning like societally or land stewards it takes us labor or effort and intelligence to connect ourselves with ecological health outcomes in a symbiotic way to be a keystone species to be a species whose net impact in a local or global area is an increase of biodiversity an increase in carbon cycle resilience and an increase in carbon drawdown in the short term while we balance the climate all of these things but it doesn't have a a set of negative externalities associated with it but running data centers and all these does it does have negative externalities there's you know strip mining and rare earth minerals and energy production and all all of all of the rest of this so how do we you know it's just like always been top of my mind what's the cost benefit there like when are we actually as a local community on a cultural level at a health level and as a global community when are we net positive in that relationship between the the information technology infrastructure the compute infrastructure and sort of like our societal ability to be a regenerative and keystone species so like um maybe like bring it down to like a more specific example like what could be possible you know so if if i've got a device like this which is like a single board computer this is a jetson and i'm running it in some use case my ultimate vision would be like okay maybe i'm running kubernetes on this thing and like you know you can cluster them too you can like build them into these like edge clusters maybe we get to a point where you know like one of these things is running a container that does nothing but accountability and and uh, sustainability so this thing is like what's the power output how much money has been put into this thing what's my life cycle if i'm being paid like maybe this is in some like foam network or some helium network so maybe this thing's earning a dollar a day or something or like 8 dollars a day like i've got several helium gateways why wouldn't there be a movement towards like let's build a container or a subsystem that can run any devices and it just it just automatically does a voluntary tax and it's like okay my device is going to last 3 years i'm going to set aside like 50 cents a day into a vault and like you know store it in the core and then after 3 years i'm going to take that money you know maybe it's $100 in the vault and i'm going to hire a guy to come and like pull the, pick this thing apart and recycle it and pick it up and like uh, like it, the rest of it goes to, or it's like carbon offsets, which, you know, are local environmental enrichment projects. So I think having the total tracking, because in, in my machine economy world, every time anybody uses this, they're paying into some fund, they're paying for the GPU, they're paying for the CPU to access this hardware. And then the machine itself can be accountable for its own sustainability in the, the environmental footprint insurance replacement supply chain costs of itself. That's the world I'm hoping for. <laughs> and we're not there yet. You know, it could be a while. Yeah. I mean, my my mind jumps immediately into, you know, how do we quantify those costs and, you know, all the rest. But that's a, that's a whole sort of rabbit hole. But that, yeah, that's that's it's great. Doable. That's, uh, we got yeah, uh, in, on, on the cloud native side, there have been a big movement in something called observability. So what observability is, is I can take my entire Linux system and everything run at, running on it and then treat that like a back, black box and understand its outputs and inputs. So it involves like trying to like, it, it sort of adds a harness to the whole system to like watch 
all the inputs and outputs. And my theory is that observability could be used as the basis of, of, of trying to like actually study systems like this from an environmental perspective. I could be wrong, but that I, I think that's the direction that could head. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's that's right and, and resonates with several of the more exciting things that people are doing on the sort of the science side of monitoring and reporting on, you know, either ecological state outcomes or energy usage and either footprint or handprint yeah. to use that framework. You know, um, so, yeah, that's all really, 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 really interesting. So, yeah, so let's, okay, let's okay. jam a little bit about the summit that's coming okay. up where you're kind of convening a bunch of folks in this emerging industry who are asking similar questions to spend some time together and do some workshops and sort of see what comes out of it. So let's uh, let's hear the vision. And I've tried to rope you in to give a talk actually at the beginning and we could talk a little bit more about that later. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. Um, so here's my here's my view because everybody has been stuck at home during COVID the last two years. So people have not met each other physically in, in a long time. And, and that's, a, that's starting to change. But um, I think remote work has some benefits, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of downsides. And, and the biggest downside is uh, I view that the Web3 and crypto innovation has just exploded under the, the scenes. And people from the broader world have not yet had a view on, on just the amount of innovation and what's possible in the technology. Uh, so... My hope with doing this summit is I want to put together the leading minds that are from the sustainability world and environmental world, together with some of the leading minds from the Web3 space who are doing applied technologies of some of this new uh, advancements and have kind of an offsite where it's like a creative brainstorming workshop together to understand what's changed and what's now possible. And, and this is this is inspired by work I've done before. Like I've worked like at Arm, I organized uh, an innovator program. We found the top fifty people, and what was a big catalyst is getting them together in person to do like a multi-day workshop and brainstorming. So a, a guy I used to uh, follow quite closely, his name is Mark Barros, and he'd been organizing remote first startups for years. And for whatever reason, like he found like the culture and the collaboration wasn't working. And he cited many times that the biggest change that he made was he began doing a, a group offsite three times a year. And then when they started doing these structured offsites, everything kind of came together and the innovation and brainstorming and culture got fixed. So I, I'm, I'm imagining the first ever offsite for this regenerative finance movement, at least in the last two years, I'm sure there've been other ones, but I want to like create that offsite feeling of like, let's, what's the shared culture so people can meet and exchange ideas from a cross section of different industries and, and we can uh, sort of dispel some of the myths about cryptocurrencies because I think a lot has been written and said, which is inaccurate. <laughs> so that's, it'll be in May from 10th to 11th. We've had, we've had so much enthusiasm and uh, we, we can only support 50 people in person. I'm very happy at, at, at the people who are stepping up to, to come and, and participate and make this happen. Yeah, super, super exciting. So what are the magical components that make or break a really great in-person experience with a group of leaders? You don't want people to be sitting there getting lectured. Like I've been to so many events like that where it's like, okay, I, I flew out here and I'm just going to sit for eight hours, like hearing people talk and then I'm going to go home. Like, that's not the point. Like there's a really great article by Mark Barros. Like uh, I, I don't have the link or I'll post it on Twitter where he, where he's, they solved this problem because they've done it like 20, 30 times. And uh, they have a very specific structure about how they do it because it's like a repeating model. So my experience is like, I want to get people in and I want I want to kick the event off and, and like have some very interesting context setting. Like here's the situation, opportunities, what's changed under the hood, and then have some, some uh, high levels and then try to get into uh, something collaborative very quickly. Break people off into working sessions, like maybe five or six tracks and then elect captains of those different tracks. Like uh, for this event, it's going to be NFTs for good, eco tokens and carbon credits, governance of DAOs, DAOs and community, fundraising and profitability for Web3 social enterprises. And then a, a topic is MRV, which is measurement reliability, I, I think, and something else, uh, or, or, or potentially return on impact. Like how do you actually justify spending time and money on some use case to show that it has an end 
result. So then I want to like remix this several times. So it'll be like, okay, we'll break up in those sessions and we want you to go talk about this particular topic and then come back and present the group then remix it again. So uh, I think the second day is mostly going to be that format. I think the first day has to be some context settings. So some talks and panels just to educate everybody. And then the next day is going to be all workshop brainstorming, like create creativity, like try and get people to actually participate versus just sitting and listening to, to talk. So that's the goal. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. It should be pretty fun. And I totally agree that creating participation and opportunity for engagement is is such a cornerstone rather than just sort of listening to someone who share a single idea. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, especially when you get a bunch of people who are more used to building and um, work <laughs> trying things than they are to listening to somebody else. <laughs> I, I view ecosystem as matrix multiplication where your organization is a vector, you've got 10 people in it, and that's each a point. And then to get the value from the ecosystem, I need to cross multiply or matrix or dot multiply with the rest of the ecosystem. So each person has to meet 10 people, and then you get this kind of like matrix multiplication, then you get a new matrix. So that's that's the highest form of ecosystem is, is, is mixing people together like that so they can all form these uh, new connections. Nice. What's the role of having an explicit goal for an event versus having it be sort of just emergent and whatever happens during the mixing? That's a great idea. So I don't actually have a good view about my goal is for people to meet each other and socially connect and share the information and do some joint brainstorming. I think that is a lot to ask for just two days. If I had a week, maybe we could go further. But I think this is like maybe at some future event, like I could go further. But for this one, this is the first time I think people have ever been, you know, like I've got folks from UNICEF and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation potentially. And I'm like, I don't even know what the state of their understanding of Web3 is. <laughs> so uh, this first one is probably primarily social in nature, social and cultural and uh, education and then maybe in the future, like more specific deliverables will, will happen. And I don't know. I, I don't know what those might look like. Cool. Well, it should be very interesting. It's going to be a fun, uh, fun experiment. It's www.refisummit.org. And uh, hit me up on Twitter and DM me. Like uh, I'm, I'm anticipating being oversubscribed a little bit. So, so I don't know how many people we can all, we can, we can get in, but I want to try to get uh, as many of the top people as I can. Cool. So I, you know, one question I have for you, Rex, is you've been sort of, it's been really fun to watch you on Twitter kind of like <laughs> engaging with learning about Web3 coming yeah. from your current work as a developer relations person, you know, sort of in the, in the compute industry. Yeah. And so I'm just curious you know, what's that experience been like to be sort of like diving down the, the Web3 or crypto rabbit hole as an industry professional, like an adjacent industry professional? Um, I, I think the education gap between these two industries is extremely large. Uh, like just the other day, I saw the CTO of like Microsoft tweeting out like a very, very critical article just going down the list and just reaming every aspect of cryptocurrencies and a lot of people just liking. So I, I'm watching this producing silicon maker IoT software space. And I, I see those people and I, I'm well connected with those people. And whenever they post that everything's a Ponzi scheme, they're getting hundreds of likes and retweets. NFTs are a scam. And then uh, I had to make a decision last year, which is, uh, after doing the research, I spent six or more months like looking into this and digging around and talking. And I came to the conclusion that this is real and it's not a Ponzi scheme. And then I had the like I had a about a week of very extreme hesitation about like, am I going to start being the Web three guy in the silicon industry? That seems career limiting. Like a lot of people are not going to like me, and I had to choose. And I decided that I'm betting that this is real and it's going to happen. And if I start talking about it, a lot of people are, are going to tune me out and ignore me because I'm a, I'm a scammer. And uh, it'll take six to 12 months before they come around. And during that time period, I'm not going to have any friends. Like people, like I noticed like all my following and like engagement fell off. But as I bet, made more friends, you know, it's kind of a little better now. But I lost a lot of the, 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 the network that I had by, by jumping into Web3 because I think a lot of people are not ready 
uh, to, to do this. So why is that? I mean, is it just like any paradigm shift that people are just kind of, kind of like not buy into it or what's the, what is the allergy amongst the sort of like old guard of the Silicon industry and just like the old guard of software that sort of doesn't, you know, like what's, what's the reactivity? Do you have a sense of that? There's a, new fault line and it's political it's become political and cultural i i think like the politics of like liberal versus libertarian versus republic like they actually seem to follow fundamental economic variable shifts so i think crypto has changed some a lot of the core variables and then people are like almost realigning along like these these new political where it's like it's like you'll see bitcoin on like tucker carlson like like michael saylor it's crazy the Republicans are now the Bitcoin party and the liberals are now the hate crypto party. And I'm like, what is like, it's like they changed. Yeah. It's like they moved to anyway. So I, I don't fully get, I think it's also, maybe it's demographic. Maybe it's just like the types of people that are into Bitcoin also like Republican stuff. So the, so like that happened, but I think so many, uh, such a large percentage of the American population now owns cryptocurrency that I think they're both sides of the fence are going to have to get on board because I don't think we're going to take your crypto away is going to be a very good message for either party in the future, just because of like how, how far it's spread. So yeah. in, in terms of why it's so uh, negative, uh, I think the startup people had a run of 20 years where being a startup was the exciting counterculture, rebellious thing to do. It's like, we're going to do a startup and throw an egg in your face and whatever. But now startups are institutionalized. Like, like Y Combinator is like, that's an institution. Churning out startups is an institution. Startups are very attached to the existing venture capital structure. And, and you know, it's like, who gets funded? Well, are, are you 20 and you went to Stanford and you have a, well, you get, here's, a, here's $2 million from, you know, there you go. So I'm like, that's not rebellious yeah. at all. That's completely <laughs> institutionalized. So um, they view cryptocurrency as like, gambling or an escape. I also, I've also heard several times like talking with CEOs of existing startups, they feel like it incentivizes people to uh, play around and not do hard work anymore. I think that's, that's one of the big ones. And I, I also view it as a disruption to startups because the, the startup people feel that their stock options are any different than the, the, the latest shit coins that are available. And they're just not, it's like, I'm, I'm doing a startup. Here's all these visions I'm going to have. Here's my option, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this instead of payment. You know, like I'm gonna talk you into accepting a lower payment for this stock option, which may or may not be worth zero. And 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 then like then you've got the crypto people who are like, well, we're gonna give you a token and we're gonna sell it immediately. And then our our crypto startup is gonna blow up into hundreds of millions of dollars before we've actually demonstrated any value. So it's a reversal of order of operations that they they a lot of these crypto groups like start out with a lot of money before they've gotten the use case, whereas the, the startups start up with a bunch of fake money that's not worth anything. And then they try and make it valuable over time. So I, I think they're, I think the existing startup and institutional firmament is at odds with this way of doing things. I think they're fundamentally competitive and it's like an order of operations thing. Also, well, That's for sure. I do think it is definitely like the acceleration of like where liquidity is, Yeah, is pretty different. Uh, And I totally agree. Like, you know, I went through Techstars with Region Network and it was torturous. (laughs) (laughs) They don't get it. With all respect to Techstars and like they got their thing and whatever, but like that institutionalization of the startup and we were, you know, Web3 startup and we were trying to build a multi-stakeholder community governed open source public network. We weren't trying to build a black box software as a service system, you know, where you have the, you, you have these known unknowns and you follow this playbook and you execute it and you just like march through it's totally institutionalized. The, the yeah. startup in quotes pathway is like, it's a mi- startup mill. You go, you step one, step two, step three, you do this, you do that, the other, and then a certain percentage of you make it and the rest don't. And we're, you know, like, especially back then, this was like 2018, yeah. you know, 2019 is like just totally you know, it's like, wow, the everything is different about what you're trying to do to build community. And like, where is the, where are the incentives, you know, building a startup in which the incentives aren't to extract value from your customers, 
but instead it's to include your customers as owners of a network in a yeah. way that they sort of like end up winning because they're participating. It's a very different set of incentives. Yeah. <laughs> you think about intellectual property differently. You think about, you know, how you build and when you share what information and like the the relationship between investors and and builders is very different. You know, like in our case, our fundraising, you know, we essentially only have ever done any fundraising from people who are running validators, essentially, yeah. or are active in some other way. So it was like the community itself sort of like bootstrapped itself and said, we want to create this like common infrastructure. I want to talk about that the validator topic a little bit. So I think that the this proof of stake networks are the, the next our new backbone for democracy itself. And I, I, I believe these validators are the equi- the the new equivalent of like citizens like or or like landowners or whatever, because like they're network security supporters and they're the, they perform the backbone and they provide the hardware and they, they make the economy possible. I, I, I saw Andrew Yang yesterday tweeting about how he believes Web3 is a critical new tool for supporting people who are uh, underprivileged and things like that. And I think that I see very exciting potential for voluntary behavior on part of validator nodes to donate some or all of their their proceeds to local causes. And uh, I bought this domain, Validators for Good or Staking for Good. And I'm trying to encourage, I want to build an ecosystem of validators that that will donate some or agree to donate some or all of, of their proceeds to good causes, whether it be universal basic income to people in their environment or, or carbon offsets or something. Because I feel like as a, somebody that has money, like if I'm an Atom user and I'm staking my Atom, the only difference between the validator nodes now is how much they give me. And I'm like, well, that's not very compelling. Like anybody could set up a validator node and offer like 8% versus 6%. I'm hoping that in the future, making the selection of validator nodes will be similar to like having a dashboard as a taxpayer where I'm like, well, not so much the military, but yes, children in poverty, I'll stake my node. I'll stake 10% of my earnings there. Carbon offsets, 30%. And then you can have fine customization about how your exact tax dollars get spent. So I think this, this validators for good concept, like I'm, I'm hoping it could turn into something like much bigger uh, to support like more local and public goods. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with that. And I, I also agree that the proof of stake, public proof of stake is really transformational and powerful yeah. if applied to local and national politics. You can you could see how we could be assembling. We could just like cut through so much yeah. nonsense and, and local polities could be innovating with quadratic voting or liquid democracy or yes. you, like there's so many different things that we could be playing with founded on this we own and operate a compute infrastructure that is um, distributed, decentralized and hack proof that allows us to sort of like make particular statements to one another that we can then read. And it's a vote or it's an yeah. or it's asset allocation or it's sort of uh, verification of an outcome or whatever it might be. I want to take the Helium user interface, which is just beautiful because like I could see who around me has got my other other Helium nodes and who my node is connected to on like a geographical grid. And I could I could see a world where like, like I tweeted this the other day where I'm like, why can't I donate some of the proceeds from my Helium grid to people in my exact zone? And I love the idea that it could be that local where for the first time I would have that direct personal connection with my community of like providing UBI or, you know, maybe not entirely covering something, but like, like I think the 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 user interface of Helium, like providing that, and it could be extended to what you're doing a regen side. Like, like why can't I say, okay, here's a cause right next door to me, and I want to donate some of my money to that, and I could see it listed on the grid, and I could walk down the street and meet that person or, or see the pond or whatever. Uh, so I think uh, we're entering a very exciting era. Definitely. I mean, we've been jamming a lot for actually for years now around 
the like a map based yes. uh, graphical user interface slash block explorer slash governance system so that you're sort of like able to see new ecological assets or your own minting or you know directly allocate you know there's been a bunch of work recently on on a module for the cosmos sdk called the allocation engine which allows you I to simply, like you're saying just yes. allocate your staking yes. rewards to a arbitrary address that you know does something you know it's like oh this is the arbitrary address for my city for my town and i allocate 10% just automatically straight there or whatever it is you know you can sort of splice I, and engage it, in that way it's, i think it's time to start telling these stories more broadly because my view is that or i just noticed like like we're like in the cosmos ecosystem it's still only talking to itself and i think it's time to like you know get maybe andrew yang to a Cosmos workshop and be like, hey, we've we've done UBI as an SDK, dude. <laughs> no, you can totally yeah. UBI. That's the then there's a program, there's a group, I forget what they're called, that built with the Cosmos SDK. Yeah. And it's a UBI experiment just based on the staking. And it's just sort of like if you're Does if you own know? it and you stake it, you just yeah. you're just earning it and you just consider UBI. Yeah. And so it's sort of like the software exists. It, the rest of it is just sort of like the social construction of like, what are we agreeing is valuable? Where is it accepted? You know, do institutions accept it as a unit of account and under what conditions? All the rest of that is actually sort of like social adoption details, but the software itself already exists. It's like, uh, this story needs to be evangelized much more broadly and, and to new classes of people. Because these are real solutions to stuff that has been talked about. Like the first wave of crypto was all like, I don't know if it was, it's highly libertarian and, and right wing in nature in some cases. But with Cosmos, this is the, like, I think the left wing of the party, like it is so, it's so weirdly political at the same time as like Cosmos and like maybe NFTs too, like the left wing leaning side of the, the ecosystem is now coming into play. And, and like, I think, yeah, like I, like, uh, where is AOC in this equation? Like, like you want UBI, here's the mechanical software to how to actually really do that. Who knows how long it will take to like implement such structures in like the, the federal government or whatever, but you could trial this now with volunteer networks and make it work today. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's already there. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And I know I got to drop you know, like <laughs> recently and there's all sorts of cool stuff. I mean, some of this stuff doesn't happen on Cosmos. Some, yeah. Sometimes it happens on other places. I know that the Berkshires, there's a local currency near me called the Berkshire, which is backed by local banks. And Amazing. they used to issue cash like paper cash paper, but COVID made it so that people stopped using cash. Yeah. Um, and so they had to digitize it. They were forced okay. to digitize it and they got all the local banks on board with a crypto. It's using, in this case, it's using Cello, Amazing. but it's a smart contract running on Cello that created a, you know, a stable coin that's backed by local banks, which yeah. is accepted at local stores and is the Berkshire, which is like one to one to a dollar. So there's like a local downtown stable coin implementation <laughs> live only an hour down the road from me. I love it. Right now. I, I, I got to drop off. I got another call, but uh, I want you to do our keynote at the summit and, and provide this context because you're the ideal person because you've been doing I, this. I'd love to. I'd be honored. Right. It'd be okay. fun. Rex, right. it's been a pleasure. Thanks right. so I'll much for you. taking the time. All right. Bye. Cheers. Have a good one.